somehow in my Getting Over Overeating course, which has been on Insight Timer for years now, I messed up. How did I miss it? How did he miss it? How did I miss it in editing? How did, I think, I don't know how many thousands of people have listened to it. Nobody told me until recently. I mean, I was mortified that I was doing an affirmation meditation at the end of a lesson, and it was supposed to say, I don't have to be perfect. And somehow I don't have to got cut out. And so it says, be perfect. I'll beat my drum for you. I'll sing my song for you. I clap my hands to the beat that transforms into. I'll beat my drum for you. I'll sing my song for you. I clap my hands to the beat that transforms into. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Art and Business of Meditation podcast. Today's guest is Andrea Wachter. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the author of Getting Over Overeating for Teens. She's also co-author of Mirror Mirror on the Wall, Breaking Free, Breaking the I Feel Fat Spell and the Don't Diet, Live It workbook. It's a great line. Andrea is an inspirational counselor, author, and meditation teacher who uses professional expertise, personal recovery, and humor to help others. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so great to connect. I think you sent me an email maybe in 2017 or 2018 because we were connected on Insight Timer. So it's really cool after you know a few years later to have this conversation and to really learn more about you. I feel like you have some really big courses on Insight Timer and you do some great work. And uh, I'm curious to, to see this other work that you're doing because you're also, you show up in some pretty interesting places. So take us a little bit back. I know you mentioned your own story of recovery, of, of maybe what got you into wanting to be a therapist or into your, your spiritual journey. So yeah, whatever feels uh, relevant to share, I'd love to, to learn more about you. Or well, I can say what got me into being a therapist, but then also perhaps later what got me into teaching on Insight Timer. And I'm sure you have a story too, how we all landed there, here, yeah. there. A therapist, my therapist journey was out of the dungeon of pain and struggling, you know, myself. I struggled severely with an eating disorder, with drug and alcohol abuse, anxiety and depression, which was probably the reasons why I turned to all the substances. And I really struggled in silence for many, many years, eventually got help. And as I began to heal the eating disorder and the drug and alcohol abuse and not as much the anxiety and depression, those were a little deeper and longer lasting. But as I began to heal from habitual, really unhealthy patterns, I just naturally wanted to help others. And I think that happens for a lot of people. It's like, you know, the lemonade out of lemons. I just wanted to share what I was learning. And so I went back to school shockingly because I always hated school. And I was like, I'm going to go back by choice. But it was so interesting to me to learn about counseling as opposed to all the things I tried to learn when I was younger that weren't of interest to me. I went back, got my master's and started being a therapist, um, first nonprofit agencies for years, and then eventually private practice. And I did private practice for like 30 something years now. So it's been a while. And in recent years, I found and 
started, you know, getting involved in insight time, or I can tell you about that if you want, but that's how I, that's my journey of becoming a psychotherapist, wanting to help people heal in the areas that I had so severely battled myself. And so this must've happened still when you were pretty fairly young, it sounds like. Yeah, I got right on Breaking Bad. I'll tell you, I started when I was a young teen. Um, as soon as I got the relaxation effect of drugs and alcohol <laughs> and cigarettes, um, I was a goner. And I was raised, unfortunately, like many of us in a the cultural obsession with thinness and body perfection and and all of that. And especially as a woman, certainly not only women, but especially as a woman, the pressure to look a certain way. So I started dieting at a really young age and then being so hungry, I couldn't stand being so hungry. So out of control eating, and I call it the diet riot roller coaster. And I rode that baby for a long time. So yeah, I did start like in my early teens with all this craziness. And um, it all just escalated. I, I It's hard for me to believe that I actually went to school. I actually had summer jobs. I actually had friends. Like I did, I had a life. And some of people would see me on the outside and think I was like the life of the party. But I was a mess inside, just constantly obsessed with my appearance and food and um, out of control with drinking and drugs and really anxiety and depression off the charts. So, uh, and it, it became such a passion of mine to help others, especially young people, but not exclusively to try to help people, you know, um, get off that path or, or veer off the path or not even go down it as kids, you know? Um, so that's what I devoted my life to a lot of my life to helping others. And when does meditation find the picture? Much later, <laughs> I remember trying to meditate when I was in early sort of recovery from addictions and my eating disorder, and I couldn't even sit for a second. In fact, this was when landlines were still happening, and um, my friend and I, we both wanted to try to meditate, so we would call each other on the landline and sit in silence, like hold the phone up to our ears and sit barely for a minute, and you know, we started with a minute. Um, then I took some classes and tried different types. And when I read my first book on mindfulness, that's when it felt like a bag came off my head. Like I just, prior to mindfulness, I just really felt like I was thoughts with limbs. Like there was nothing present about me. It was just a thinking and not a helpful or kind thinking. Um, and when I read about mindfulness and I was like, oh, our thoughts aren't real. Wait a minute. What? You know, like I'd spent decades just tortured by my thoughts. Wait a minute. Present moment. What's that? You know, I literally, I, years after I learned about mindfulness and began dabbling in meditation, I went on a date and the guy asked me to go to a, like a class, a talk and I said, what's the topic? And he said, presence. And I was like, holiday presence? Like, what do you mean presence? Like, what does that even mean? And we went to this talk, to a spiritual talk. And I ended up going back every week for years to that particular teacher. Um, so I, it was dabbling at first and then full on, like, I am so devoted to living in reality and not invisible 
issues, <laughs> invisible future, invisible past. I am so devoted to it. I, I sort of joke, sort of, that my life feels like a spiritual retreat. I mean, I do work and I do have a life other than this, but I'm, I'm just so devoted to living in reality instead of my my unkind mind, you know, which my mind isn't really that unkind anymore, fortunately. So it sounds like a, a beautiful, just I'm already feeling the the transmission of of what you've gone through and catalyzed and transformed in your path. And it's just to hear like you talk about your journey as a devotional practice and like what's the you know what's the difference between work and praying and I, I love a teacher David Hawkins who would would always say to make your life a prayer and I think what I'm hearing you say is is kind of that that it's like that you know and obviously there's also that intention to to notice to continually be on guard of doing your work right staying aware of the places that I'm I'm sure that you still might trip up or get into, you know, spiraling down, but maybe like you, you're, you're in it and doing it for, for a while. So that's in finding, you know, and in doing your therapy. So I'm assuming you started your practice of, of therapy and then this meditation entered the picture or, or have you been bringing, bringing it in from the beginning or how do you, I guess, use, you know, how do you work with your clients in that way? Well, I think in the early years, it was mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, process work, gestalt, um, a lot of um, learning to change and upgrade self-talk. Didn't know the word upgrade then. Didn't even have cell phones then. I uh, make myself sound I like just, I'm 90. But. I just have a distinction just for my own curiosity. When you say process work, is that more like emotional feel, like feeling, moving, like energy, like like, uh, like feeling? Yes. And it's more, it's also like parts work. What we now know of is parts work or yep. um, IFS, internal sure. family systems. But back then I didn't, I don't even think that was around. I, I had learned a lot from a place called the Process Therapy Institute. And it's like, rather than talking about feelings, feeling them in the moment, rather than just talking about I'm anxious, tuning into anxiety and having compassion or your heart connect with it and talk back or bringing it out into a chair and your know, imagination. So having a process that brings out what's going on inside. And, um, and that, that was very powerful for my own work and hopefully, hopefully clients. Um, but it wasn't until years along the way that I really started meditating and not like, I guess I could say being able to meditate, you know, not just sitting and obsessing the whole time and looking at the clock, but finding my way to actual some mom some moments of peace there and some moments of actual presence. I didn't really know about guided meditations, but I, I still find them extremely helpful. Some people like more quiet or chanting or sound, but I, I and sometimes I do, but I really like someone guiding me, even if it's my own, <laughs> my own guidance. That's beautiful. So I'm just curious as someone, you know, maybe you have your own views of, of coaching because coaches is kind of like the wild west, right? Therapy is a little bit more uh, structured and boards and there's, you know, more uh, bureaucracy and there's more like actual, you know, rele relegations and things like that. Yeah. So to, to start your practice, 
And I'm thinking of people listening on here. There, I'm, I'm, I know there's potentially some therapists. I know there's potentially some coaches. And so, you know, to start a coaching practice, people are like, I don't even know what that looks like. But therapy, it feels like there's more of a route. Maybe there's like centers where you're practicing at. So how do you start? I mean, I guess in your time, it was 30 years ago. So it's a different time. But how do you start like a therapy practice, a, a solo practice? Um, or how, you know, how was that journey for you? Well, school helped, although I didn't learn that much from school, I must say. I really learned from working at agencies and being trained, being supervised, being in the trenches. I remember going into a session and doing something, some intervention, listening, whatever, hearing something, then going to supervision and having the supervisor suggest, what do I do in the next session? And then I would do it. And then they'd respond and I'd be like, uh-oh, I got to go back to supervision. I really didn't have it in me yet intuitively or you know, was educated enough to be able to tune inside and really know how to respond to different situations. And I was working at the time at a, a family crisis agency. I mean, it was like a mash unit. It was just teens in crisis and drugs and alcohol and you know, um, juvenile hall and newly trying to be clean and sober teens who didn't want to be there and eating disorders who didn't want to be there. It was just crazy. How did I start? I got my degree. Not easy, but I did. I got 3000 hours. Can't even believe I did that, but I did. I got them at the agencies and then fortunately was able to get hired. Um, And then I just knew that I wanted a private practice. It was partly because I wanted to be my own boss, But realistically, I knew that I would work eight hours to make the same in one hour, in 50 minutes, you know, at an agency with a beeper and after hours and tons of paperwork versus private practice, but pros and cons to everything. Because you work at an agency, you get a paycheck, sometimes you get benefits, you get supervision, you get group, you know, connection, camaraderie, support, you're on your own, you're on your own. Although I did have a business partner and that's another story, but, um, so I think I answered maybe. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of work, I think in anyone here, like considering, you know, different sort of, you know, coaching training, like having that mentorship, right. Having like people watching what you're doing, right. Obviously is very crucial to like, oh, learning through having someone who knows what they're doing, watch you, give you feedback. Um, and, you know, putting your hours in 3000 hours is, a lot of a lot of being in the trenches getting your reps so i can totally see how that was it was it challenging like what what was the what was it like to say okay now i'm going to set up this private practice like fears i'm sure um and 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 i guess how quickly were you able to oh okay i have a steady stream of clients how do you market yourself how did you get yourself out there those are great questions. I did it. I weaned myself. I, I worked part-time at the agency for, for a while and then started in private practice. I rented an office part-time from someone so I didn't have to be responsible for an entire office space. I One thing I did that was extremely helpful was I took, well, I first I had a specialty, which Decades later, I wished I didn't because that's like all I would get was eating disorders and anorexic girls and like people potentially life-threatening situations, bulimia and people struggling with binge eating and a lot of networking with the team, with doctors and dietitians and therapists. It was 
it was my specialty. It's my heart. It's the thing I lost the most amount of time on this planet to struggling with. But I wish that later that I didn't have just one specialty that I kind of got known for in my county that that I had a little more diversity, but eventually I did. So, oh, I interrupted myself. What was I saying about, oh, building the practice? One thing that I did that was super helpful was I found in my town people that were booked therapists that were had waiting lists, doctors that were really popular, and I asked them if I could take them out to lunch. And who doesn't like a free lunch, right? So I just, you know, I did a lot of that. And that to me was different than sending out my card, my announcement, I'm opening my private practice. If somebody doesn't know you and really get a feel for you and you take them to lunch too, not that they would have referred to me if they didn't like me, but that just felt really helpful to take people to lunch and meet them or for tea and uh, meet the doctors in town and for years, those were my biggest referral sources were the people that I actually introduced myself to. Yeah, that trust, that trust factor. I'm sure like people listening to think of like, how, what's the analogous thing for you in just yeah, developing connections? Really, I mean, what I'm hearing is it's a really solid way of networking. And, you know, the, I guess the question is, is how do we do that if we're not, you know, local, right? If our network, if we're looking to be more online, um, and there's ways, right? There's definitely ways to to cultivate that. Right. But that's another good point is that if you're a psychotherapist, which I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, you can only work in the state that you're licensed. Mm, yes. So you really don't have, if you're having private practice and you're going by the books, you don't, you don't network. I do sometimes work brief sessions with people in my courses to just do psychoeducation and help them with the lessons, but I'm not doing deep ongoing psychotherapy with people out of the state. But fortunately, because of my courses, I can help students, you know, sometimes online who are out of my area, but I definitely don't do deep long-term psychotherapy with them. So you deal with a lot of really difficult topics and difficult experiences, depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders. And you mentioned when we talked or when I asked in, in my kind of inquiry for it, that one of your gifts is actually bringing humor to and levity to such challenging topics. So I just, I'm, I'm curious if you're able to, how, what does that look like? Like, how do you bring, you know, humor to what can seem like such a dire, dark circumstance? It's funny because when I was in sixth grade, they were giving out awards and like best at this and most at this. And, and I got this little ribbon that said, um, funniest. And I went up to the stage to pick it up and they said, so now say something funny. And I was just like mortified standing on the stage with my entire class trying to say something funny. I'm thinking, I didn't even know the word stand up then, but mortified. So now you're asking me, how do I be funny? I just be myself. I've got that East Coast, you know, shtick kind of thing. My dad was super funny and I definitely don't do it. I think at inappropriate times, I definitely try to, it just sort of comes out, I think a little bit here with us, you know, Um, but life and I don't even think laughing at ourselves. I just think sometimes things happen 
in a session or connecting with people. And there's a way to have it be lighthearted when it's appropriate, certainly when it's appropriate. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of my courses, but I definitely have some jokes in there. Not jokes like, you know, a guy came up to a bar, you know, kind of thing, but just some levity, some some lightheartedness when it feels appropriate. So take, you mentioned before, uh, we were on this, like, it's interesting, you, you've got, you're you're writing for psychology today. And you mentioned before this that you used to write for AOL, which was such a throwback. Does that so, even exist anymore? <laughs> I think it still exists, but not in the way that it did probably when you were writing for it. It's probably the biggest mailbox slash, you know, news source slash online platform. So how did you get these kind of writing opportunities early on? That's a great question. I, I sort of just, I do what I love. I reach out to people when I'm moved to, and then I just see what happens. That's like kind of my philosophy of life. I, when I met my business partner, we originally met in an eating disorder support group 30 something years ago probably longer. And then we decided to, we both had our private practices. We decided to also have a little group together to, you know, do eating disorder groups in our town, write a book eventually. So, and people would ask me, what's your goal for your business with this, with my business partner? And I said, wherever it wants to go. And so that's what I have always done. If I'm drawn to write to somebody, write to a newspaper, would you like me to do a Q&A column? Here's my specialties. Lately, I write to Oprah because I'm hoping to be with her, have her know about my classes. I, you know, where I'm drawn, otherwise I just do what I do. And somehow somebody on AOL contacted me. This was like dial-up days. I mean, I literally, I was doing groups and some waiting for the dial-up, you know, and not sure I was even going to get in it. And I started a column. Maybe I had done a column for a newspaper locally, a Q&A. That's, I've always loved Q&A, which is why I love the classroom so much in the Insight Timer courses. I just love that format of being able to respond and support and offer tools. So AOL, somebody contacted me, can't remember who. And I started doing this column called, I think it was called Ask Andrea, like a little Dear Abby kind of thing. People would ask me questions and I'd respond back. Then we had live chats, which again was the dial up, cross your fingers that they that it would dial up in time. And I did that for a, a while. How I got psyched today, this is 30 years later, um, somebody reached out to me. Actually, somebody reached out to me, an editor from Psychology Today, and on email and said, we'd love for you to write to for us, articles for us. And then the next day, another editor from Psychology Today wrote to me and said, we'd like you to write for us. And I thought, oh, this is spam. Because when you start getting more than one, like in a day, I'm thinking, oh, please. And I Googled their both their names. They were legit editors from Psych Today. And I'm thinking, and I kind of had a little bit of an attitude, like if this is a marketing thing, I don't want to pay you for articles. And he said, I swear it's not, we're going to pay you. And I thought, oh, sorry, I called you a marketer, you know, a spammer. But anyway, we've we've <laughs> worked that out. So they reached out to me. Other times I've had, Real had quick, a publisher. So did neither of knew like each other was reaching out? Like they both found you he and then they that's both reached ne- out? He said, that's never happened before. That's we wild. both happened to read a Huffington Post blog of yours. Wow. He heard me on a podcast, The Happiness Lab. She read a blog and they both happened to in 24 hours. So to me, that is like totally meant to be. 
And um, yeah, so that was pretty amazing. And it's been just sort of a mixture over the years of, I reach out to someone and say, would you be interested in me, whatevering, writing a book, a idea, a, a interview, or other times I'm just going about my life and somebody reaches out to me. It's sort of been a mixture of that. So if I'm following you correctly on that, it's it's not that you have the strategy to always be waking up and like, who can I connect with? Who can I reach out to? How can I, you know, get myself in this thing and that? But it sounds like it's more of this kind of quiet urge or nudge or intuitive hit that you're like, hmm, something about this speaks to me. Or this, you know, let me reach out. Am I following that right? Completely. I was thinking the other day, I was actually hiking in the forest and I was thinking about doing this talk with you and that maybe, you know, we might talk about how, how my, how I started the meditations and how I started the courses. And I was thinking some of my courses were like planned births and some of them were unplanned pregnancies. Like I, I've had, I totally, am going to do this class on body, body image. That's like, I, I want to do that. I'm going to sit down and work on it. Or I totally want to you know, write this anxiety relief course. I have the tools inside of me. Other times it's like three in the morning, wake, woken up by my mind. Here's the syllabus for a depression relief course. No, I don't want to do another course. It's not, it's too much work. It's three in the morning. Here it is, sweetheart. So it was like totally unplanned baby and other ones were planned. And that's kind of how it's always been. My only true goal is peace of mind. And I really mean that peace of mind and wellness, throw in some good health, you know, that's it. And so I keep that as my home base. And then if something comes to me, to do, if it comes to me, if it just pops up into my mind, oh, submit this to such and such, you know, if it pops into my mind, you know, do a meditation on this thing that you've been doing with yourself before you go to sleep. That, Or somebody writes to me and it feels good and I want to say yes. That's pretty much how I do it. Yeah. Such a such a beautiful reminder, I think, for for myself when I think of like, having those feelings and the people that I've connected to and and some of the things that have unfolded from that, like, and then also the times when I've tried to force things and, you know, those weren't the right, you know, energy. And that's, you know, I, I learned from that too. So I, I appreciate the reminder. Let's talk insight timer. How does, you know, we, I, I've talked to a lot of insight timer teachers, as you can imagine. Uh, uh, and it's always fun to hear when they find it, how it shows up, their experience of it um, for me and for, for sure some other people listening. So yeah. How, when did that enter the picture? And, and, you know, what was your first thoughts as, as things were rolling on there? I bet you get such different stories of how people got there, found their way there. So I was, as I said, in private practice for a long time, pre-smartphones. I was like, I called myself the post-it therapist because I would always hand someone a post-it, like try thinking about this during the week in between sessions and try, because I know for myself, I needed more than just 50 minutes a week. There's a lot of hours there with your mind. So I was always really committed to giving people homework suggestions and ideas to think about at home. And then I started, once I really became devoted to internal practices like meditation or guided, you know, mindfulness or process work, I would do that with clients a lot in the session. So if somebody was struggling with binge eating, let's say, I might guide them in a meditation to think of the binge eater part of them 
And what does that part say? What is that part really hungry for? And how can you respond to that right now from your heart? And so things like that, or just mindfulness, you know, coming home to the chair and this, this room. And what I was hearing often from clients is they would come back the next week and say, that thing we did at the end was really helpful. I wish I could have had a, had a recording of that. Well, then smartphones came on the scene. And I thought, well, we can, you can have a recording of that. So I would often, when I was guiding people in a process of some sort, at some point in the session, I would say, would you like me to hold your phone if we do this? You know, I can record it into your phone and just getting feedback again and again that I listened to that every night or I listened to that. It was so helpful hearing it. I did it over and over. So that seed was there. Well, then flash forward several years. I don't know how many years, but a lot. I didn't even know what an app was. I'm definitely not like technologically savvy person, but um, my husband, also a meditator, also a therapist, also, you know, very spiritually connected. He, I came home one day and he said, oh, I found this app. There's There's this new app. It's like the most popular app out there. It's called Insight Timer. And I was like, what's an app? I mean, that's how far gone I was. So it at the time, I remember, I'm not big with numbers, but I think there was... 4 million users at the time. I think now there's like 24 or 25 million. So he said, oh, why don't we start each day doing a meditation on on the app together? And so I love that idea. We would often meditate together anyway in the mornings. And that's how we started. And still to this day, start every morning. We take out the app and we pick one Sometimes we stick with a person or something, never mind, because I just, I do, I don't want to be hearing. I'll go, oh, I had a swallow there. I missed that crack voice sound crackle darn, you know, so um, sometimes yours and just different people's, whatever we're drawn to. And that's how we started every, every morning. And then one day my husband said, you know, why don't, you've been really enjoying making meditations on people's smartphones. Why don't you put one on Insight Timer? And so I thought, okay, well, where's the quietest place in the house? It turned out to be my closet. So I took my little iPhone into my closet, surrounded myself with my clothes, and I made a meditation, my first one. And um, as I'm sure you feel, the feedback, I mean, hearing from people all over the world that liked my meditation, that said my voice was soothing, that said the words were helpful. And I mean, it was just so gratifying. And eventually, you know, that's how it started. And then eventually they started compensating and I came out of the closet and got a microphone and a studio, but, you know, for my courses and just things just went from there. I think I have 40 or 50, I don't know how many meditations and then my classes, it's just been such a blessing. Yeah. I think you have 60,000 followers on there. You have some really popular, like really amazing courses and what I heard is that on your first meditation, you just did it on an iPhone and uploaded it and it, you still got good feedback, right? I still got good feedback. And I didn't even really know. Well, I did know what I was doing and that I had 30 years of helping people with processes and working with the mind and tuning into the body. But I never went to like, here's how to be a meditation teacher class, you know, and I never went to like, here's what kind of how, where to stand with the microphone and don't eat potato chips right before you talk. You know, I never, nobody ever, I never learned any of that. It was only years later that I learned it's best not to talk directly into the microphone. I'm like, oh, I should have known that, you know, 14 meditations ago, but 
yeah, my first meditation, unedited, raw, and my first few bunch of meditations actually, and they still you know did really great. And you'll you'll see some people that you know might have commented uh, on swallowing and there was one like my most popular meditation the one that just became like just you know some meditation just especially in the early days like became the popular one it was a yeah. morning meditation no surprise but it i actually uploaded an edited version because i think we can re-upload it but still some I've of my oldest ones some yeah. of my oldest ones are still raw because there's something about just like I don't know. There's just the energy and it's there and it's that time and uh, it's great. So anyone listening to this, obviously there's a lot more teachers on it than when we got on there, but you know, it doesn't have to be the most produced, edited, shiny thing that sometimes actually people appreciate, Hey, this person, you know, I just feel their spirit right? I feel their energy. Right. And I can concur. Like you have a very, soothing voice and also just your energy of your being I, I always believe that that's actually one of our biggest teachings that we're doing whether we're holding space for other people or whether we're creating a meditation is like that that imbuing of ourselves into the work into that and and being there for someone so mm. uh, really 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 awesome so you mentioned figuring out recording you know what have you learned about recording and i see you have your uh like the blanket behind you so like what are some tips that you've learned to like up your your recording studio well for years with my courses especially i went to a local studio and and people don't even have to go to a studio you can record something at home and email it to a, a sound editor if you find one you like or i like mine and at least get the pops out and the hisses and the peas and the background sound. I mean, that that's that can always be done, even from the iPhone. I've now sometimes will go down into the laundry room, take my computer. Well, I, my husband has to carry the whole thing. It's just, it's a whole production. I didn't do it today. I, I thought I'll just go with the blankets. What I've learned is as much cushioning as possible. So you're not in an empty room carpet, clothes. I have like a little styrofoam box. Sometimes I use not sitting, not going right up to the microphone, I think really helps. Being hydrated is huge and not just like guzzling five minutes before you record, but hydrating throughout the day. I started with that. And I really appreciated learning. Don't talk directly into the mic, talk to the, the side. So it doesn't take your P's and S's as, as much. But I did want to say something about those reviews because it has interestingly really helped me with life I think to get some not a lot probably if I got a lot I would have stopped but occasional negative reviews and I've noticed that in the beginning I would have butterflies in my stomach and think oh my god someone thought I sounded patronizing I'm not I'm like the nicest person I know what the heck like I was just coming from my heart how could I sound and the very next review for the very same thing is this was like the best thing I ever heard and I'm thinking wait a minute what's true so it's I, I've gotten better at handling those occasional negative reviews I I don't try to read into them I wish the person well I don't get butterflies in my stomach anymore and so it's sort of toughened me up a little bit. I know being a sensitive person has helped in my work with people, but it's also really can be hard to be sensitive. And um, 
I think you have a course on this that I listened to once that was really helpful. I can't remember the name of it. Not taking things personally or not caring what people think those, or something. Yeah, yeah. My husband was going to do it with me. And then he said, no, I got, I got enough from the title. The title was really helpful. And I'm like, oh man, he just got, he like healed from the title and I have to take the whole thing and try all day long to not take it personally or not care what people think. So yeah. that's away from the recording aspects. If you want to veer me back, feel free. No, that's this is great, I, and I and I still care a lot about what other people think. That's why I'm still working on it. Right? We teach we, <laughs> uh, we, we teach what we we need to learn, but it's, yes. it's so true. Like those reviews, you know, you'll have like ten amazing reviews, and there's one criticism, and you're just your whole energy goes to this one thing yes. that negativity bias that we have, and it's also it's it's really, and I'm sure you know you're a therapist, so you you can kind of aware of this too. It's like you know. In, in good and bad ways, people are, are are taking, they're putting their life onto your words. And sometimes I get I get comments and reviews and I'm like, I didn't even say that or mean it like that, but it helped you exactly what you needed help with, right? So great. And then the other side, sometimes you'll get people, you know, putting their stuff on your thing and it'll just bring up all this stuff that's like, okay, this is what you needed to, to share and this is what this brought up for you. And so it's like they're gonna obviously project themselves onto it in, in both good and 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 negative ways and and Absolutely. learning to you know to disidentify from from that and knowing what's yours and what's theirs and what's your responsibility and what's you know on them is is a is definitely a, a practice. And as as I'm sure you've you know, with um, the amount of courses and feedback that you've probably gotten, it's it's that's it's been a, a journey too. Yes. And there are times when I get feedback and I think wow, that's true. I miss that. And I do it over, or, you know, oh, not the sounds or the popping so much, but like, oh, I miss that part of a lesson in a course. And that's really important. I'm going to do that lesson over. You know, it's not like I'm thrilled to go get out the laundry, you know, go to the studio and do it, all, but it's worth it to me to really be able to stand behind and update things when they need to be. So sometimes people give me feedback and I think you're right. I'm going to change that blog or change that lesson. Yeah, sometimes I agree. Like it's almost like, oh, I, I never would have seen it that way. Like, but you're right. Like that does make sense. That yes. that this that this thing. Like, yeah, and you just respond. And and I I I don't have to change it. Like I, I like to let things live in the way that they were sometimes, and just be like, you know, this is one person that saw it this way. And you're right. And sometimes people make comments. It's like I don't even remember what I said. This was like four years ago on on this course. <laughs> On, on the note of this, because this is, I, I, I uh, people on this course or on this podcast are probably tired of me, sick of me talking about this, but, you know, I see meditation, like the title of this as an art. Like it's a, it, to me, it's like my, one of my art, the art that I am most connected to, meaning like how a singer looks at songs. I see meditations, like I have an idea, I'm working through something and, you know, through working through it my creation is a song just how an art you know singer's creation must might be an album that's so how i look at courses courses are kind of like my albums and so as an artist i know i or we or an artist would have more you know more love or appreciation for certain albums sometimes like you know i think this is going to be it right? and it's like really connected to this but then this thing is what people want so i'm just curious with the, your the courses you've created if like there's ones that are your favorite versus the ones that were most marketable or like most popular like curious if how that lands for you 
That's interesting. Yeah, I see them as my babies, but I can totally appreciate the artist. You know, I really, there's like a painting. It just, it's a creation. It comes out of us. Um, I could say my favorite meditation for sure is um, is called A Message to Anxiety. And it's where I have guide people to talk to their anxious mind and their anxious sensations from compassion. And I have just found that really helpful for myself, you know, to kind of separate out. There's the compassionate heart, the wise mind, and then the freaked out limbic system and like to talk to it, you know, my favorite course, that's tricky. I'm quite, I was surprised about the depression relief class. That was like the one I said, just came out at three in the morning, not the whole thing, but the, the form, the formula, the, the, the outline for it just came out in the middle of the night. And I really feel proudest. I think of that. I feel like, um, I really went through a lot of depression in my life and like not wanting to be here anymore on the planet levels of depression. And so I put everything I learned and everything that's helped me into that course. And again, I get lots of like, this is save my life. I'm doing it again. I love this course. And then like, not for me, one star. And I'm thinking, why, how come, you know, and then I think, okay, you know, bless your heart. But that course I, I feel proud of my the overeating class also oh, it would be funny if i just said every one of my classes is my favorite you totally can just like I it's can. like kids right if they're your babies exactly. right they're all they're your all favorites. my favorites um <laughs> the overeating getting over overeating course again from the trenches that that course is everything i learned that helped me stop binge eating restricting my food obsessing on my appearance and i have a teen book uh called getting over overeating and and so I took the the legs, you know, the the like the basics of that, and made it into an adult or any age course. So yeah, but I, I guess I think that's an answer. I mean, I do love them all, and they're all really important to me. They're all birthed out of love and experience and personal hell, really. Yeah, yeah. As an extension, I don't mean to laugh at the personal hell, but as an extension of this uh, this podcast, I am creating a a course on, and and I might be misguided if I'm being honest. It's like there's the question of, well, I do this really well and I love doing it, and so I wonder, you know, people ask me about it, like, could I help others do it? But this is my like, I'm this is my art, so I, I'm people aren't going to do it like I do it. So I'm I, I guess. In the spirit of, I'm, I'm thinking, I am creating a course on creating meditation courses. It's a little meta, but what what's your process like when you get the idea? Like, you know, I know some people that you know, outline it and then they just riff. You know, I personally script and I write it like a book. Like, and it takes me months to like get through a course. Yep. Curious your process on it. That's exactly what I do. I script every single word. Occasionally, I'll ad lib in the moment. And I'll change things in the recording and editing, you know, section part. But yes, the a few of my courses were planned. And so I really just sat down and maybe, and I didn't say like, I'm going to have writing hours because that's just not, I can't make it come. But I would start with an outline, move it around a little bit as I go, just a creative process. Like you said, painting, you know, I mean, just moving it around and I would go do it when I was drawn to do it. And I would write on my computer. 
Sometimes I'd end up doing the outline first. Sometimes I'd end up doing the lessons and then the outline would come, but it would just be, what do I want to put in here? And then I'd get ideas and I'd add to it. I'd constantly be on my notes on my phones and adding something. Oh, I just, or, or I'd say something in a session and think, oh, that should go in that lesson. And so it was just this birthing process for each course, except for the depression one, like I said, which just came out. I couldn't believe it. And then I would write every word, like writing a book. They're baby books. They're kind of books, really. And with work workbook, you know, because you need a, a process at the end or a meditation or for me, writing, journaling prompts, all kinds of things. And then I would set out to record. I mostly recorded at the studio near my house, which is in a guy, uh, my engineer's home. And once Insight Timer said the courses need to be professionally recorded, uh, that's when I started going to his place. That was extra work because I'd have to go there and, you know, bring, be, be, be hydrated, bring snacks, bring, you know, and pay him while I'm snacking because I can't go that many hours without eating personally. So, and, and just do it from his house, from his studio. One course I did at a studio that turned out not to be that good. And it was so mouth sounds and static. It just sounded terrible. And it was up there. And I didn't realize till years later. I had heard it, but I think I was in a fog. Sometimes you listen to things later and think, how did I miss that? I don't know if that happens to you. Like, what did I, how did I miss that on editing? I'll tell you a funny story about editing recently. And so I did a lot of recording there. Well, then COVID happened. And so then he helped me buy this microphone. So I would, well, he suggested he didn't help me buy it. He he told me what to buy. <laughs> Sounded like he chipped in with me. And then I started doing it from home and then send emailing it to him. And then he would do his magic. But my funny story about editing was somehow in my getting over overeating course, which has been on Insight Timer for years now. I messed up. How did I miss it? How did he miss it? How did I miss it in editing? How did, I think, I don't know how many thousands of people have listened to it. Nobody told me until recently. I mean, I was mortified that I was doing an affirmation meditation at the end of a lesson. And it was supposed to say, I don't have to be perfect. And somehow I don't have to got cut out. And so it says, be perfect. I was, I could, someone said to me, you know, in lesson such and such, I, 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 like I was really in this peaceful state. And then I got so jarred when you said be perfect, because I don't think that's what this, I haven't heard you say that in this course. And I'm thinking that's like the opposite of what I stand for. Like, and how did 10,000, 20, I don't know how many people have taken the class. Nobody tell me. And how did I miss it in editing? Cause I listened to every, that's back to how you do it. I would, he edits it. I listen, I send it back. I need more space in this. I need a little less space. Take out that sentence. I don't like it. It's such a process as you know, but I missed that sentence and it said, be perfect for however many thousands of people listen to that affirmation meditation. And I couldn't try fast enough to get him to change it. And I thought, I don't have to be perfect. Like say those words to myself, my meditation, my courses do not have to be perfect. And I had to live with it saying, be perfect for however many, I think it was weeks because he was out of town. 
So there you have oh, it. My, I can feel that knowing the, knowing <laughs> the, yeah, knowing that I could imagine what that would be like to like, know that this is out there then here and then imagine all the people that heard it like this and what did they think and all, and, uh, and what a, what a meta lesson for you to like, to really live it and not have to be perfect. That's yeah. such a great story. That's such a great story. Yeah. Your process is, is, is much more like mine. I, I don't, I actually haven't gone to a studio i don't know if i snuck in, in the radar there because uh i don't know there's there, i mean what we give up when we do that is like there's like a little pressure right? there's like now we're in a different space we're in a different energy different thing and uh yeah i've been fortunate where an audio editor has done okay and it feels like each course sounds different sometimes feels it better sometimes worse but you know i'm definitely like you in like the crafting of it and trying to really in doing so, I think it also packs as much in, in the short amount of time that we have rather than just kind of, you know, just filler words necessary to like take away time. Yeah. I was so, really grateful when insight timer took away the, the minimum or maximum time constraints on the lessons. Cause I found that really hard. I think it was like needed to be more than seven and less than 14 or something like that. In the early days, yeah, it was really, courses. really hard. But once they took that down, I went back to my getting over overeating and I made a couple of those babies 20 because I, I had so much more I wanted to say in certain on certain topics. And I know it's nice to have shorter bite size, you know, for people's schedules and stuff, but there's just some topics that need to be, for me, a little bit longer. So you've written multiple books. You just mentioned your writing process which was interesting where you you're you're don't set the time to write you're like you're not making it happen so i'm curious is that the same way you've done your books like you kind of do you have a writing practice or is it just like i i guess how have you how do you write a book without getting yourself in the chair and like forcing yourself to write that's a great question they sort of came out of me as a result of um my work with clients well my first book the don't diet live at workbook that's decades, decades old. We just revised it because there was some stuff in there I just could not stand behind anymore. But my business partner, who I met in an eating disorders group, and we decided to form a little group practice on the side of our private practices, we were going to tell the county about our new practice where we're going to do eating disorder groups for, in the county. And so we thought, well, why don't we do a, two, a few talks? So we'll like, you know, rent a place, rent some space somewhere and set, put out some flyers and um, and then do a talk for free about who we are and what we're offering in our groups. And, and, and then someone said, well, maybe you should have like a pamphlet or something to hand out at the talks so that when they, they leave, they have this, you know, this pamphlet about your, your groups. And then someone said, why don't you write a book? And we were like, oh, okay. We had no clue how to write a book. We started out, we were sharing an office at the time because we couldn't afford our own offices. So we would leave ideas on post-its on the desk that we were sharing. So when she came in for her sessions, she would write down some ideas. And then when I would come in, I would read her post-its and then add some. So we ended up with like a book of post-its. Like the old school Google Doc, right? Old Each school. person editing. Completely before computer. I mean, I think there must have been some kind of computers back then, those big things, you know, those big sure. gray monitor things. So our first book was ridiculous. We never, of course, didn't finish it for the talks. We finished it years later. We self-published. We made a thousand copies. We just, 
went back and forth. We rarely would meet together. No, that's not true. We would write chapters separately. And then we would meet at one of our houses and show each other what we wrote and then try to write things, write it together, kind of make it, you know, give ideas back and forth. Sometimes it would take us hours on one sentence and sometimes we would whip through a chapter and then we self-published it. And then we had one box left and somebody picked it up. Somebody heard of it and a publisher picked us up. So that was the first book. The second book, that's the Don't Die at Live at Work book. The second book I was working with kids in my practice. I didn't want to work with young kids with eating disorders, but I was getting these calls from parents. I'd been working with teens, college age, young adults and adults for years as like one of the eating disorder therapists in my town. And people were calling and saying, a doctor saying, I have a six-year-old who's got an eating disorder. I have a seven-year-old who, you know, won't go to school because she hates her body. I have a, you know, seven-year-old boy who's like in the back of the car doing push-ups, sit-ups because he wants six-pack abs. The craziness from the culture because of, so you know, online dribbled down to these poor kids. And so I would say, well, I don't work with kids. I had never been a child therapist. So I would call the child therapist in town and say, can you take this case? And they would say, I don't work with eating disorders. So here it's like, they don't work with eating disorders and I don't work with kids. And I just kept thinking, somebody's got to do this, you know? So I just thought, I guess it's going to be me. So I started trying to come up with like rhymes and cute little stories, not trying. It just sort of came out of me. It was like, again, it just... I was like, oh, I could tell there's a cute little rhyme. I could talk about looking in the mirror and, you know, and so it just started coming out of me and I was doing this with in sessions with little kids and it was helping them. And so that became my children's book, my um, breaking the I feel fat spell. And, uh, and then the getting over overeating became my new course. So that's a lot of information. I don't know if that's more than you wanted, but there it is. (laughs) It's it's a love. It's another example of like how you're just you kind of you listen to the whispers and you're listening to like what life is giving you and also what's emerging from you. Right? I think that's if I'm if I'm already thinking of like a great message from this podcast is is like yeah, like to 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 be in the space where you're able to do that. And it sounds like your you know to be in that peace of mind is an access point to it. And I'm sure if you're, you know, if there's a lot of stuff happening, it's harder to listen to what the universe is giving you or to what's emerging from within you. Yeah. It's harder to hear it. Yeah. Let alone listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrea, we're, we're coming up towards uh, the end of our, our time. Uh, I want to respect your time. And this has been such a fun conversation. Uh, I'd love to just open up space. I don't know if there's anything we didn't get a chance to talk about or as you think about like maybe the person listening who's, you know, getting into growing themselves in their craft and wellness meditation, you know, something they want to share, you know, their gifts in this way. Is there, is there anything comes to mind like that you wish, you know, you would have known starting out earlier on, on, on your journey? That's a great question. My journey as a therapist or my journey as a meditation teacher? Either or. Well, as a therapist, I wish that I had broadened my spectrum and not just been the eating disorders lady. That would have been, you know, because after years and years and years and years, it was it's nice to work with other issues. As a meditation teacher, 
I was, I think, I don't know if I said this on the recording or before we started, but like, I just wish someone would have told me, you know, hydrate hours before you record, not like 10 minutes and don't talk directly into the mic, talk past it. And um, you don't have to be perfect. These recordings just, you know, speak from your heart and that comes through, have cushioning around you, but just do what you love. You know, that's really what I do. And I'm so blessed to have been able to make a living as a private practice, you know, therapist in, in my county. I'm so blessed because I know a lot of people can't, you know, they have to work for agencies or work, have other jobs. And um, yeah, I think the theme of this talk really has been follow your heart, follow your heart. And if there's no answer there, try don't pull it out. Don't press it down. Just do your day, treat your body as well as you can, try to quiet the mind as much as possible so there's room to hear the wisdom of our hearts. So beautiful. Andrew, what are you creating now? Are you working on another course, a book? Are you just are you just focused on like what does your day look like nowadays? That's a great question. Oh, creating peace. I have an aging mom, so I'm putting a lot of time into that right now, mm-hmm. traveling to go see her. So I'm there's a few things in the oven, like a couple of meditations, no book. I do try to write a blog a month for psychology today. So that's always in the till. Like I'll be, I could be out in the forest hiking and an idea will just come to me. Or a lot of times I'll be in a session with a client or continually repeating something in my classrooms that I think, oh, that could be a blog or that could be in meditation. So that's what I, I really use what comes to me or what I say or what I think. If something feels important that I say to myself or that I, or helpful, um, then I, I usually will, it, it will come out to be a meditation or a blog, but I don't pressure myself. And I used to think, you know, I have to come out with a new, whatever it's been so long. And I think, no, if I never did another blog or meditation again, that would be totally fine. And that really takes the pressure off because I just don't feel creative when I'm pressuring myself. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful note to to end this on. And I guess lastly, I know you don't do, unless you're in California, you might be able to um, work with Andrea as a, as a, as a patient or client. Um, but where I guess can people find you obviously insight timer, um, Andrea Wachter, and website, I believe, is is it just your name.net? Dot com. Dot com. Okay. And I do, like I said, in the classrooms, as you've mentioned, I'm sure that Insight Timer courses have inter- like um, yes. interactive classrooms on the web. And I just love that feature. So if someone does take my courses or any one of them, then they can, I can support them in the classroom. And I just, I love doing that. It's the best to like actually voice message back people. Like it's super, super fun. Yeah, yes. Or definitely. type. Sometimes I'll just do an a response and I take it. It's almost like a blog, my response, because I just want to give them everything I have on their question. And then that sometimes becomes a blog, you know? So it's yeah. really interesting. I think you said that once that sometimes things morph into other things, right? Something you're writing for a meditation, but then it becomes something you write or put out somewhere else. So it's just like letting it come out and then see where it wants to go. Totally. I mean, content like that stuff can work in so many different ways, you know, so it's like building off of repackaging things like mm-hmm. there's, I just released just two of my last courses have all been blogs that I put a lot of energy to they've come they've kind of been standalone blogs. And then I'm like, 
I can create a story out of this and it becomes like a course on unhappiness and fulfillment. And so like, yeah, just learning how to like repackage and connections and um, is part of part of the journey. So that's really, that's really awesome. Thank you. So, Thank you for having me. This has been lovely and easy and um, just enjoyable. So thank yeah, you. It's been a joy. Thanks, Andrea. And tell everyone listening, thanks for, for being on this journey. And uh, we'll talk again soon. I'll beat my drum for you. i sing my song for you. i clap my hands to the beat that transforms into. I'll beat my drum for you. i sing my song for you. i clap my hands to the beat that transforms into. The music you heard is a song called Nova by River. Roots. Thank you so much for listening.